Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. Very excited to welcome Paul Bolno, President and CEO at Wave Life Sciences. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thank you, Rahul. It's great to be here. Great. So, Paul, uh, to kick us off, would love if you could talk to us about your background and the early parts of your career. It's an interesting beginning because, you know, I, I, while everybody kind of we could start with, with school, I think, you know, the arc of my career probably began at the age of what I can remember at 10, where my, my father is a physician and I can remember very early on doing rounds with him Friday night. So Friday, we go have family dinner, we go out, drop the family off, and then I would go with him to the hospital for rounds. And he worked a lot. So for me, it was kind of a combination of an opportunity to spend time with him and see what he did. But it was also a time that I really found the connection to clinical medicine and not the scientific aspect of clinical medicine, but the opportunity to really engage with patients. And it was something I just always appreciated about him was time. So we often talk about physicians today and the time crunch, are they spending enough time with patients? My father was one who probably spent more time with patients than uh, I think patients would like in that, you know, we would be rounding at like one o'clock in the morning because after a long day of spending time with people, we'd be just starting going to see patients before the year of hospitals. But it was really neat because what I got to do is really spend time talking to people and people who were not, you know, not at their best. They were, you know, these were difficult situations and, you know, really found humanity in it. And really found a passion and, and knew at a very early age that, you know, I said, this is, this, is what I, this is what I want to do. And so that was exciting. It was igniting. It, you know, it's always neat when you find kind of what you're really interested in doing early on. So I found myself in, in under, undergrad taking a bunch of science courses to get myself ready for medical school, but also really I had a number of other passions. And that was really understanding people, cultures. And so majored in um, actually medical anthropology, came out of undergrad and went into medicine. So again, found, found my purpose, found my meaning, loved medical school in terms of devouring science um, and time with patients, um, and really found my, my passion in, in surgery. So I went into general surgery, did a cardiothoracic surgery research fellowship, and I think it was really in that time that I found myself on much more of a 24-on, 24-off schedule. And so you have very little time to think outside the box and to think about other ideas and things one's passionate about. And during my postdoc research fellowship, when you kind of get a chance to finally step out of that setting and I got to go into the lab, I recognized that there were a number of things that I wanted to explore beyond where I had guided my, my studies early on. And at that time, really did two things. One, there weren't labs that were at that time that were doing stem cell research in, in cardiovascular medicine and thinking about stem cell replacement for heart failure. And so designed a, a research program built around that. And um, I guess it's where my entrepreneurial event was formed because in setting up that lab, I'll never forget uh, the chairman of our department saying, well, that's awesome that you want to do that. You need to go figure out a way to pay for it because we don't have a grant to do that. And I said, great, you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. I can put together a couple of PIs that we can do that work. And 
I'll go moonlight and I'll find a way to pay my salary so that I can do the work that I'm interested in doing. And I guess alongside that, I also got an MBA. And I think the convergence of spending time in the lab and seeing research and realizing there were big gaps in translating interesting science, because at the time, there wasn't a lot of platform work coming out of academia into the formation of biotech. I was really excited about the idea of, you know, how does one translate science from labs into companies? So left, went into healthcare private equity. We were building biotech companies. It was a great time. Um, and we were getting a number of companies funded. We funded Intercept Pharmaceuticals and, and a number of others. And it was, it was a really exciting time at Two River. Kind of following that and recognizing that I also needed to expand my horizons, now having had kind of more academic medicine settings and now investing in, and kind of constructing companies, was very fortunate to join the team at GSK Oncology at a point in time where the oncology business unit was getting formed. So I joined as essentially it was head of BD for GSK Oncology, which really, given that we were now forming this business unit, got to really be a chief business officer of, of the global oncology business unit. A talented group of individuals from you know the leadership on clinical, thinking about how we were building out a discovery organization across what's now really interesting spaces. We were building out immune oncology, we were building out epigenetics, we were building out cancer metabolism. So a, a number of these smaller organizations there are really getting to help think about the science, how to structure deals with companies that would actually work with us in a collaborative way to bring science and to move it forward, but also got to spend time with our commercial teams and really think about learning about the industry much more broadly. So it was a, a fascinating trading ground with, as I said, some extraordinary people. I know GSK is where you met Greg Verdine, who was an original founder of Wave and a name people may recognize as a visionary in this field. Can you tell us about that experience and how it led you to ultimately join Wave as CEO? You know, Greg was really instrumental, and I'll never forget this. He was on the chemistry advisory board of GSK. He's a phenomenal thought leader on thinking about, you know, how do we drug undruggable targets? And I'll never forget a conversation because at GSK, we felt like, all right, if there was a way to hit an undruggable target, we had deals with Alnylam, Ionis, Regulus, Procent. I mean, there were ample number of different tools in order to think about, you know, how you can manipulate RNA potentially to become a therapeutic. I, I, like I said, I'll, I'll never forget Greg leaning over going, you know, do you know that's a mixture of 524,288 different drugs? What do you mean? You know, we study this in a dish, it's, you know, it's a, it's a medicine, we, you know, we look at it and there's a number of examples of medicines that have been developed that way. But it was Greg's real, I think, intuition and insights in the realization that, you know, a lot of what we did to make RNA therapeutics into medicine, so to stabilize them, help them get it into, bind a protein so they can be in circulation, get into cells, be able to manipulate a particular enzyme to exert a specific function, you know, in this case, in the majority of cases at that time. And... You know, we put these different modifications on it, phosphorothioate being one of them. And every time you put this modification on the backbone, you put a chiral sensor. And, you know, for those maybe don't know what a chiral sensor is, you know, put your left hand on top of your right hand and you realize your thumbs are pointing in different directions. And so they're the mirror image of each other. And what we learned was, you know, since thalidomide in the small molecule world, when you have one chiral center, you can have radically different pharmacology and toxicology. I think thalidomide is a great example of the toxicology. As again, Greg's insight was, well, wow, you know, if that's one chiral center and now you're in a 20 Murray of 19 chiral centers, you're now dealing with combinatorial libraries of half a million different drugs that have all different potentials for pharmacology, toxicology, and activity. And yet we talk about this class and category of medicines as if they're singular. 
And, you know, wow, imagine nature recognizes very specific structures. You know, there's a reason why our enzymes want to see things a specific way so things don't run around your body and, and work in a uh, way that drives off targets or other features. And so there's this real kind of locking key notion that, you know, wow, if we could really understand and interrogate how you could control chirality across an RNA molecule, well, now you can actually bring for the first time for this category of medicines you can bring rational drug design to the field of oligonucleotides. And that was huge insight. I think the challenge was, you know what, that's pretty hard to do. There's not a system. You can't separate half a million drugs out, can't manufacture it. There was a, a big piece of saying, you know, we need to solve for this, this challenge. Well, moved on from GSK Oncology, actually is running um, investments in business development for GSK in Asia, based in Shanghai, spending, you know, a week a month in Japan, Korea, Singapore. But in Japan, there was actually another great scientist, Takeshi Wada, who was very interested in unlocking scalable manufacturing of chirally controlled oligonucleotides. And so lo and behold, in different places, you know, different people kind of approaching that, you know, this was a an industry challenge but needed to be solved for different ways. And you know, I said Takeshi had this hammer, but there was no nail, just scaling it for purpose. It was well to what end? And so, you know, the last stop on the career trajectory as of now led me back to WAVE. And, you know, I think, you know, where those two forms come together is, I always say the, the WA in WAVE is Takeshi Wada and the VE in WAVE is Greg Verdine. And we realized that, you know, across the board, you know, we needed to bring those insights together in terms of building WAVE. And, you know, Greg was really impactful in bringing those, you know, two organizations together and realizing that the best of WAVE would come from the convergence of one having the capability to scale it. So if we're successful, we can we can make medicines because that's ultimately the goal of the move. This isn't a research project. You know, how do we unlock the potential of oligonucleotides across classes to create a therapy? Um, but if we can also bring together rational design to do that, you know, that was going to be the real, I think, the future. And so that really led me into WAVE when, you know, we had five people across chemistry and biology and, you know, an early data set to suggest, indeed, you know, chirality is important. Our goal was really, okay, great that we started. How do we kind of transform an industry that really challenged convention? You've got to originate conviction in biotech. And, you know, I think if you're going to do something really different and really hard, there's lots of people who tell you why what you're doing is impossible, irrelevant, and not important. Um, and you have to have conviction in the belief system that, Scientifically, it's very rational. We can solve really complex problems if we put our mind to it. Um, and that's really, really what led us into getting WAVE off the ground. Great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, lots, to, lots to unpack there. For, for starters, I'm, I'm curious, as you made the transition from GSK to being a CEO of a biotech what were some of the perhaps non-obvious learnings in your you know, first couple of years on the job that you perhaps hadn't anticipated um, and had to quickly adapt? You know, you think about a, a large organization like, you know, a GSK or any, where you have billions of dollars in free cash flow. And so really, you've got lots of opportunity to do a lot of different things and to see, you know, which things are going to mature and which things aren't. I think what you learn very quickly in running a smaller biotech company where you don't generate free cash flow, you raise it and you raise it with a certain expectation of deliverables. I think the key is having a really focused plan of this is who we're going to be. This is where we want to go. 
And how do we get there? Well, you get there by really executing across a smaller series of events that are very focused. And if you're successful there, each one unlocks bigger opportunities, but you really do need to stay focused on that execution and taking each of those steps. The complicated feature, too, in leading that is, and you know, as I say, having been at the company from all different sizes and some of the complexity is the complexity of scaling that. And I think sometimes what you have to realize is not only do you have to believe in that plan and know what those individual steps are, everybody understands collectively where you're walking and doesn't just tell them this is where we're walking. You need to make sure that people really buy into and understand, and that's true whether you're five people or 500, of whether or not people really understand the rationale of why you're suggesting that, what that work is, and really believe that that work and the ownership around that work is there. And I think it's one of the things at a very early point in WAVE that you know we didn't take for granted um, and took seriously was how do we drive contribution of scientists collectively together in a very formative way? You know, how do we get places where there's interfaces for potential you know, challenges? How do you create the opportunity for groups to challenge each other, push each other, but do so in a way that's collaborative? And do that so that you, you build trust and you do that at a nuclear level when you're you know, five to ten people so that you start to establish the culture going forward. Um, and that's something early on both the focus, but also, you know, that discipline of getting people to get excited and participate in the journey and feel like they're building alongside and along the way was crucial. And it's something that, you know, I think about it ingrained today. We've managed to scale it, and I think it's just an ingrained sense of culture. Great. Thanks, Paul. Switching, switching gears a bit, I'd love to hear your perspective on the role and opportunity that RNA presents in medicine. And perhaps talk a little bit about the diversification of different treatment modalities and perhaps even the convergence of some of those modalities uh, over the last couple of years. I think about the fact that we're talking about now RNA therapeutics as a third pillar of medicines that have commercial applications that are helping millions of patients, you know, not just in the small rare genetics, but I think about in glycerin, you know, with PCSK9, that's helping potentially millions and millions of patients. And so the opportunity set to really think about this category now as a tractable therapeutic class is awesome in, in the sense of really using that word. I think what's exciting now for the field is really now thinking about those applications in a whole, in a whole broader set. You know, we talk a lot about you know, the commercial potential of silencing. We've got examples now of splicing in both Nusinersen and in Exondus with more opportunities to kind of create proteins. And then we've got fields, so we've got RNA sage and antisense medicines, we've got AGO2 and RNAi medicines, we've got splicing medicines. I think what's been exciting too is obviously less because of what we had to do with COVID-19, but we've seen mRNA as a category of medicines move forward on the vaccine front and so generating proteins. And so as I think about kind of the compendium of moving all of those therapies forward, you know, we've got a really rich, diverse set of commercially applicable modalities that are there. I think the exciting opportunity now, and I think this is really what's unique in stepping back for WAVE, is a realization that we started with polyclonal antibodies, and then we moved to monoclonal and then humanized monoclonal. And with each innovation step, we realized that we could continue to refine and do better and better for patients. I think the opportunity set in RNA therapeutics now, and kind of what WAVE is interested in bringing to the table is saying, okay, what happens when we bring rational design to this? What happens when we bring now new chemistry backbones to this that we can now, because of rational design on a single drug, optimize? 
and it lets us think about pushing the bounds of durability. And so the opportunity set for us to be thinking about improving potency, improving durability, improving tolerability, and opening up accessibility to new target space is really our opportunity set. We're doing that in RNSH and Antisense in a really unique way. So you know, we started having the conversations around the table at Waves saying, and I said, you, your question of what is the first order of business, our first order of business was, okay, how do we get a group of people around the table to really say, great that we've got this capability set, where do we deploy it? Why does it matter? And you know, we brought in some experts and they were like, wow, so in the case of your different modalities, if you give a a mixture of an oligonucleotide, it cuts in a bunch of different places. And I say cuts because you put the oligo in, it engages an enzyme, and that enzyme cuts the transcript. If you have over half a million different copies of oligos that are going in the body, it's going to cut the transcript in a whole bunch of different places. The resolution of a single drug lets you now have a single cut site in a predefined space. So you can characterize where is your medicine guiding the end. Now some people go, well, so what? What do you, you know, why does that matter? Well, in addition to safety and knowing what you're going to cut and what you don't want to cut, it opens up a new opportunity for us now to think about that single cut site as a potential advantage on a therapeutic. And so we realized in the case of Huntington's disease, so in this case of Huntington's, you get a copy from each parent, and it's autosomal dominant, so these patients have, you know, a copy of a mutant Huntington allele that makes a toxic protein, and they have this healthy protein. And they already start life with a limited amount of this healthy protein. And so we think about a disease like Huntington's disease that's both a toxic gain of function, meaning they have a bad protein that kills neurons, and they're losing a protein that's actually neuroprotective. It's involved in a whole bunch of mechanisms like BDNF trafficking. You'd say when we were talking to some experts, well, wow, wouldn't it be fascinating if you could develop a single medicine that could just cut the mutant transcript and take the toxic gain of function away? but leave the wild-type protein intact for those patients. And we said, ah, that would be a really cool application of this capability. It's not just a nice-to-have, it's really a must-have in a therapeutic. And so we realized is, if you sequence these patients, they're actually these single nucleotide polymorphisms, they're SNPs. Um, they don't cause disease, they just happen to be kind of evolutionary genetic hitchhikers on the bad transcript. And so if we could develop an oligo that could singularly target those SNPs, then you could take that protein away and do that. And so that was kind of the early work at WAVE to say, wow, if we could do this and then turn this into a therapeutic, we can now really demonstrate that not only are single rationally designed drugs important and meaningful just because you should understand and characterize the same drug you put in vitro being the same drug that goes into animal experiments, same drug goes into tox, same drug goes into patients, how it is for every other category in medicine, but if we could do that beyond that, say, well, here's really the applicable tool to actually see a difference potentially for patients in the clinic, that would be great. So we did that. We did that in case of Huntington's, and now in phase one, two studies, where for the first time, we demonstrated in patients that it was indeed possible to knock down meaningfully the toxic protein and to leave the healthy alone. And you know, seeing science translate for patients, giving hope and thinking about the next phase of development was really exciting. So where do you see RNA therapeutics going next? And in your opinion, what's that next big thing in RNA? I think the other area of RNA therapeutics that's incredibly exciting to us is the field of RNA editing. The transcriptome is a really interesting space, and we can have really meaningful impact on patients if we think about post-translational modifications and really changing proteins for patients. So there we said... You know, unlike the fields of other editing where you have to, one, you have to put the enzyme into a cell to go do the editing, and then you put an oligonucleotide guide strand that's a mixture of a whole bunch of things that could edit on and off target, 
into that same package and then try to deliver that in the cell and then ultimately influence it. And it's exciting to see science in those areas translate. You know, our team, and this speaks to the fact of bringing great people into the company and saying, how do we let them explore the balance of science and our technology? It's like kids in candy store. Like, come in, contribute, and if you've got a really cool idea, we've got a great library of things to work on and work with to really answer important scientific questions. We had some great scientists who came from editing backgrounds who said, wow, instead of cutting and using these enzymes that cut, or like silence, like AGO2 and RNA-SH, they said, what if we took the ADAR enzyme that's already in our cells and can base set it, so that all we have to do is deliver an oligonucleotide guide strand into the cell, which we're very good at doing. And if we can do that, now we can harness an enzyme that's in the cell that is editing and actually have a potent editing tool that can now correct in multiple tissues, CNS, kidney, liver. And so that ultimately led to the alpha-1 antitrypsin program we're bringing forward where our team said, you know, let's take a disease where if we can flip the base in this transcript for this patient, we can ultimately convert a protein that's toxic and misfolded into one that's wild type and normal. And so now patients who end up, so alpha-1 antitrypsin is easy patients, end up having both liver and lung diseases. And there's different approaches people are taking. Some are trying to silence it with RNA therapeutics. Some are trying to infuse protein to protect the lung. Oftentimes, these patients are now going to need both. Our team was like, well, why don't we fix their endogenous protein? You correct it. They get a normal level of protein to protect their lung. And actually, because now you get normal non-aggregating protein, that misfolded protein now clears the liver. And so you get one single therapy that actually corrects the protein. And so we're bringing our first AMER, our RNA editing corrector, using ADAR into the clinic this year, and actually just announced a broad collaboration with GSK that includes our alpha-1 antitrypsin program. And so I think as we think about new tools of RNA therapeutics, I think what we've been able to open up through new chemistry is actually new biology. And as we think about moving that forward, I think that's really the exciting promise and capability for WAVE today. That's great, Paul. And it certainly seems like exciting progress over the last couple of years. I'm curious, as you think about, given the vast array of applications with your technology, and I imagine indication selection can be quite challenging, wondering if there's any insights that you have around you know, best practices for indication selection when there is the possibility to, to boil the ocean. Obviously, your reason for being is to have a massive, meaningful impact to patients. So you do want to bring something forward, at least we do, you know, and I can speak on behalf of WAVE, where if you're successful, you get to change lives. I mean, that's why I went into medicine at the beginning. That's why we're still here today. And I think there's still a focus of let's make sure that we're going to have a big impact for patients. That's an interesting point. I mean, the, the idea of boiling the ocean for targets is, is something that I think has often challenged our, the field and the industry and actually played a substantial role in our selecting GSK as a partner for our, our recent deal. You know, what we realized was, despite a growing number of platform companies with um, chemistry capabilities or technology capabilities to hit targets, it is interesting when you look at companies that are that are going public, they're all listing the same, you know, 10, 15 targets that they're going after. And so we see this consolidation around certain targets. So there really was a unique opportunity to step back and say, how do we get unique insights into clinically validated genetics and targets to pursue that really allow the platform to show its uniqueness where you can bring innovation in chemistry to innovation in biology and advance meaningful new therapies. And so the deal structure 
with GSK really allows both of us to do that. I think GSK has been a company that's invested substantially in understanding clinically validated genetics. They've done the deal with 23andMe. They've done deals with UK Biobank. They've done deals with UCF and Berkeley, which allowed them then to take CRISPR so you can find interesting clinically validated genetics out of those early partnerships, bring that into those CRISPR screens to identify, you know, biology and drug ability. I think what that leaves people with is, okay, once you identify those targets, then how do you create medicines around them? And that's really where we think WAVE fits uniquely with GSK of saying, how do we transfer these unique genetic insights into meaningful therapies? I think the second thing that's, you know, as important, so third medicines translated is, and I think this is really an, an industry, this isn't a, a wave challenge, this isn't an, any individual company, is in thinking about targets, the biomarker measurability space. So as you think about, you know, developability and saying, if you need to demonstrate that you have that effect, can you rely on the biomarkers that you're developing, that you're measuring in your clinical study? They're going to help guide that critical inflection between your preclinical studies to your clinical studies and actually de-risk your move from your phase two study into your registrational study. And I think what's you know, foundational is that and there's been a lot of work, is more work done on biomarker discovery that really unlocks that capability. And, and the, you know, I think one of the efficiencies that we've been able to develop in terms of thinking about development differently um, here at WAVE was if you have those settings together, so, you know, meaningful medicine, targeted therapeutic that you can measure in a biomarker, it means you can rethink and reimagine how you do clinical development of programs, which means in CNS, you know, we've been really, our team has been instrumental in bringing adaptive clinical trial design forward. And I think what's important is historically the landscape for neurology development is run big landmark studies, you run them over years, right? And then at the end of a whole year, you flip a card over and you say, well, what happened? You know, you go back and you look at your data over time and say, it worked or it didn't work. And what's neat about the adaptive clinical trial designs as we've been implementing them is they rapidly, and again, if your patient focuses, how do you quickly answer questions with patients where you're minimizing, you know, you have placebo, because we believe that placebo studies, you know, are important, but you can minimize the number of patients that are on that. You can maximize the patients that are on an effective dose of drug and ultimately get the answers to your questions very efficiently. And that's part of, I think, one of the critical features of biotech development is not all medicines are going to work. I mean, we're in an industry that has a, you know, despite all the improvements with genetic targeted therapy, still has a high failure rate. Um, and that's just, that's inevitable. But being able to do that very quickly and get to that answer so that you can put those resources into what could be coming next is important. And being able to answer questions for patients very quickly is important. Great. And, and Paul, you know, the, the right now we're at an interesting point uh, across our biotech ecosystem, quite a bit of volatility, public and private markets have started to, to tighten up. I'm curious, you know, given the inherent risk that's involved in everything we do in drug development, how have you found that you're able to navigate, this is a two-part question, how you are able to navigate the emotional ups and downs of that as the CEO of a company? And then furthermore, from a cultural perspective, how you articulate that to the team and the impact that those ups and downs, because invariably, you know, most programs are going to fail to, to prep folks for that. Great question. <laughs> I think it's, some of it is just innate. I'm sure many of my colleagues who've been asked the same question, you know, I think we, we're, we, we're all in it because at the end, you believe in what you're doing. And I think part of that is 
authenticity in, in a really sincere way. You believe that, you know, you have to in this business believe that what you're doing is important. We're not building a company because, you know, the markets are up and there's a way to monetize it and, you know, that that's great. We're building a company that realizes that we've been through a number of bear markets and we've been through some bull markets. And I think if we think about it in a very long-term way, what's fundamental is that you truly believe that you're on an important journey and there's going to be hills and there's going to be valleys. And, you know, you learn from both of those. You don't rest too comfortably when things are going really well and the market's going really well. You know, that's not a time to, to relax, but you also don't panic and get organizations panic around those times where it looks like things are tightening. I mean, when we went public in 2015, the markets were getting kind of shaky as we were going out. And there were a number of people who were like, you know, well, what is this going to mean? How do you, and, and you just stay very focused on we believe this is what we're going to do. We think it's really important. We're going to execute on that. And the capital is there. And I think that's what teams look for. I mean, I think there's this sincerity that you have to have with the organization, too, and reminding people. You know, I think you can say, well, everything's going to be great. I think you need to be honest, too, that things aren't going to work and that what people are really looking for is not for you to tell them everything's going to be okay, but that there's a plan in place for the organization that the on the other side of that, regardless of what the data readout is, and I always remind people, like, we can do everything we can to control all of the input, but at the end, it's nature and biology that tells us what the output is. And the key is, how are we positioned on the other side to very quickly manage our patient community as much as our, our people? And I think when people realize that, you know, there are plans, we do take learnings, you know, whether if something works, we're also not just going, let's forget everything we just learned in doing that. And when things don't work, that we quickly and responsibly shut something down, communicate it, and take those embed those learnings. I think people see that and can navigate the highs and lows. I think we also build a diversified base. I think to your point, when we talk about highs and lows, we're often really reflecting on the capital markets. We've got other markets for revenue, right, which is, an, or cash inflows, which is, you know, our, our partners in, on the business development space. And, you know, we've been successful in navigating both sources of capital. We've brought in nearly a billion dollars in capital over time. And I say that because it's diversified. It's not all in, you know, equity. And so I think the key is, you know, having a long-term vision, staying on that vision, staying on course. People believe internally we should be on that. And I think it's helpful that, you know, being able to articulate that clearly to the shareholders who do support the company, to share that vision, I think is a way to, you know, continue to march regardless of whether the road's looking high or low. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that very valuable insight. It's a it's a topic that comes up often in very different ways on this podcast. Paul, one one last question. Given all that you've experienced over your career and all the highs and lows as we just talked about, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? I think it's a reminder that it, that it it's going to take longer than you think. You know, I think when you go into it, and I think a lot about my my younger self and that self some gray hair, is, you know, you've got to move with urgency. You've got to be asking the right questions. You know, that's all really important. But the realization that, you know, you continue to embed those learnings and that it will take longer than you anticipate. It's just the nature of it. And I think part of building a sustainable company, which, you know, I look back at the original business plan we were putting together in the early part of Wave, and it's remarkably unchanged. We have this very long vision of what we want to build and realizing that those, that road, again, could go high and low, 
But if you still keep your eye focused on this is where we're going to get to, and it could, it's going to take longer than you anticipated, I think it keeps you focused on the end. And I think, you know, we've, we've remained that way. But yeah, I wish I told myself, just don't, don't sweat it if it takes a little bit longer than you anticipated. Yeah, great. Well, Paul, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation and congratulations on all the exciting progress uh, at WAVE with you and your colleagues. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.